Who requested that one, just out of curiosity? Oh, oh, okay, that makes sense. All right. Kristen requested this psalm, if anyone is interested. So, And the ESV had to go and ruin it and replace mercies with steadfast love, which just doesn't sing as well. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. No, it doesn't work. But it uh, does point to the meaning of that word, and we'll dig into that here in a moment. Psalm 89, a long psalm, 52 verses. You don't have the entire psalm on your, uh, on your handout. And that's because this will go in multiple parts. So we will go as far as we can today, and then, Lord willing, finish up the rest next week. Maybe it'll be three-parter. I don't know. We'll try to do it in two. Um, but this is a fantastic psalm, and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to read this in stages. You don't have the full psalm in front of you. I'm going to read the full psalm. So if you have your Bible, you might want to uh, look at that, at least for the initial reading here, and uh, I keep blacking out, don't I? You think it's uh, the connection there? All right. Um, so you might want to look at your Bible as we read through the entire psalm. And, uh, and then we will uh, we'll dig into at least the first half of the psalm tonight. Psalm 89, and I said we're going to do this in stages, so I'm going to read a portion together and then we're going to stop. And I want you to kind of explain to me the theme of that portion. How would you characterize that portion of the psalm? And then we'll move on to the next one. Does that make sense? All right. Psalm 89, verse 1. And... Uh, so I saw that uh, the handouts might have already gotten passed out, extra ones. All right, Psalm 89, verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed, crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. And I'm going to stop there for a moment. How would you describe verses 1 through 18. What's the tone? What's the feel? What's the theme? Praise. Very good. So he is extolling God and magnifying his attributes. That's pretty clear. Let's continue on in verse 19. 
Of old you have sp- you spoken a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and steadfast love... Oops, I forgot to erase some underlines. Spoiler alert. My faithfulness and steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love will keep him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn... By my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Stop there. What's the tone? What's the theme of that portion? Covenant. Very good. At the very beginning, verse 19, he says, Of old you swore... And then everything else is a quotation of God promising something to who? David. So the first section is extolling God for his attributes. The second section is recounting the promises, the covenant of God. Verse 38 through the end of the, of the chapter. But now... You have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You you have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Oh, how long, O oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, by which, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. There's a plot twist. What did that last section? What's the theme of that last section? Despair, judgment, lament. 
Did you see that coming? Did that seem like where it was going to end when we started this psalm? It was praise. It was recounting the promises of God. And then, shoo, it went 180 degrees in the other direction. And it basically said, God, this is who you are. This is what you've promised. But it doesn't seem like it right now. It doesn't seem like your covenant is being upheld. And so... I want us to look through the whole psalm. Yes, Linda. Who is um, Ethan the Ezra? Ezraite? Yes. And is it, is it him talking over the lament, or is that David rehearsing what he's feeling? I believe that, so I, I, if I'm not mistaken, and someone correct me if they, if they know better, um, masculine is a, is a uh, musical term, and I believe Ethan the Ezraite is more musician than author, I think. If I'm correct, incorrect, you can, you can correct me on that. So there's no, I don't think there's an actual author attributed to this one that we know of. Yeah. And, and the last part I asked, is it David saying the lament, kind of voicing what he's feeling and everything? I don't think this is David. I, because I think this is someone looking back on the covenant with David. Of old you said to your holy one, speaking of David, right? And then, and then the lament, the last part, I think is describing a current crisis that puts that Davidic covenant in jeopardy. Because the covenant was, I'm going to keep someone on your throne forever, right? That's the Davidic covenant. And it seems to be that there's a certain point when that line seems to be broken. That whoever the king is at that moment has been dethroned. And so now the psalmist is looking at the situation and thinking, oh no, is the Davidic covenant broken? Is, is the line, the Davidic line, cut off? And so it's not talking about David the king at that point. It's talking about someone in the Davidic line, a king, who sounds like he's been dethroned or deposed from king. Yeah. So this is a very uh, diverse psalm. A blend of themes. It is a psalm of praise, a psalm of petition, and a psalm of lament, all rolled into one. And it, and it goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And before we jump into the psalm, I wanted to set the tone for how I think we should read this psalm. And the way I think we should read this psalm is with the end of the psalm in mind. In other words, I don't think we should read this linearly, linearly, it's a hard word to say, linearly, linearly, as if the psalmist starts out praising God and rejoicing in his promise, and then two-thirds of the way through the psalm, all of a sudden a crisis hits right after he finished verses 37 and before he writes verse 38, and now he's lamenting. If we read it that way, it may lead us to wonder if he still meant what he said at the beginning of the psalm, okay? So I don't think that that pivot point between Praise and lament is where the crisis happened. I think the crisis happened before he ever started writing verse 1. So, the confusion and sorrow he is experiencing is already there when we read the opening verses extolling God for his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Does that make sense? So, so in other words, we want to read the beginning of the psalm like we already read the end of the story the last chapter of the book. Who, who likes to spoil it by reading the last chapter of a book? You guys are crazy. Who, who Googles the end of a movie when you start watching it to see if the main character dies? Patrick. 
horrible. Um, so this is kind of what we're doing here, all right? We're gonna, we, we know what the end of the psalm is, where he's lamenting. He, there's a crisis here, and we want to read the beginning of the psalm knowing that the psalmist is in that situation. Because I think it makes the praise all the more powerful. Because he is legitimately praising God for his steadfast love and faithfulness in the midst of a time where he doesn't see his steadfast love and his faithfulness. With all that said, let's jump in. Verses 1 through 4 serve, I believe, as kind of an opening introduction. Verses 1 through 4. And we open with the resolution by the psalmist to sing praise to God for two things. What are the two things that he is praising God for? Steadfast love and faithfulness. You're going to see those two attributes repeated multiple times through this song. And they're always going to be with each other, almost every single time, with each other. Steadfast love and faithfulness. And whenever you see that, underline that in your, in your psalm. You'll see it even in, in verse 2. Steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness often appear together. They're complementary. Psalm 117, which is like got to be one of the shortest psalms in all the Bible, uh, says this. This is the whole psalm. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So there it is. There's Psalm 117, extolling his steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, these are often parallel, so there's definitely some overlap between these two terms. But if you were to differentiate steadfast love and faithfulness, how might you differentiate those? What is it about God that each attribute is highlighting or focusing on? What do you think? What makes steadfast love different than faithfulness? Any ideas? Susan. Okay, well, that's a great question. I've I got to ask it again. Does anyone know the Hebrew word for steadfast love? Oh. Chesed. All right. So the reason why it's often translated mercies is due in part because it's just a hard word to translate. But the, the, the word actually in its fullest meaning means this loyal love, right? We've talked about this in other Psalms too. This loyal covenant love. And so mercies, it's, it's not, when you see Hesed translated mercies, it's not the same sense, it's not the same mercy that we see in his attribute of mercy, where he's withholding, you know, judgment that we deserve. That's what we think of when we think of mercy. Steadfast love is, is this covenant faithful loyalty. I, one thing that, that the King James does get right in saying, I'll sing of the mercies of the Lord, this is actually a plural the heseds of the Lord, okay? Um, and that could be one of two things. Either it's a plural of intensification. Hebrews does that when it's trying to intensify or emphasize something. Uh, it'll make it a plural. We see that in Elohim. Elohim is a plural word. 
and it's describing God. Or it can be plural in the sense of all of his acts of steadfast love. Um, so steadfast love, I think, is a good... You'll see loyal love, you'll see covenant love, but that's the idea here. How would that differentiate at all from faithfulness? They're definitely very similar, but how might we differentiate the two? Well, well the love says, I'm going to love you regardless of what you do. Okay. And the faithfulness is, I'm going to do everything I said I would do. Okay. So faithfulness is like a reliability, right? While loyal love or steadfast love is um, a, a devotion to, in spite of our, 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 uh, our weaknesses. I like that. Any other thoughts? Yes? You can be faithful to somebody. Okay, good. Right, so you can just be faithful because you've got to be faithful. Right? And so there, there's, there's that reliability. You can count on me. But you might say that maybe steadfast love is the quality and faithfulness is the duration. That might be one way of differentiating the two. Um, it makes that faithfulness genuine. But anyway, these are, these are the key characteristics of God in this psalm. But these two attributes are nothing if they're not attached to a particular action or a commitment. When we see someone as, say someone is loyal... There's an implied object to that. He's loyal in what? Right? Loyal in his friendship. Loyal in his marriage. And when we say someone is reliable, reliable in what? Reliable in his word or reliable in punctuality. Right? These two descriptions always have an object in, implied. And so in this case, what would be the object applied to God's steadfast love and faithfulness? What is it that he is loyal and faithful about? His covenant. Very good. How do we know this? Um, Look in verse 2. Steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. So verse 2 says that the steadfast love and faithfulness is established in the heavens. It's maintained in the heavens. In other words, it's not up to man. Man does not maintain it. It's outside of man's control. God establishes it. Look in verse 3. You have, a sta- you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So here we see built up and established in connection with his steadfast love and faithfulness. Here we see the exact same Hebrew words, establish and build up, in connection to his covenant. So he establishes and builds up his steadfast love and faithfulness. And how is that seen? Through him establishing and building up David in his covenant. What's that? Yes, yeah, chiasm. I haven't really talked much about chiasms yet. Maybe I'll dig into that. Those are fun. Um, Theologians find a chiasm in everything. There's always a chiasm, right? You can always find a chiasm. But there might be an actual chiasm here. Um, There's interesting here, verse 2. For I said this because you have said this. And so we, we praise the steadfast love and faithfulness of our God as we see him remain faithful in his promises to us. That's how we know that God is loyal in his love and faithful in his word because of the promises, the covenant that he makes 
with his people. The covenant with David is going to be so key in this psalm. We see there in verse 3 and 4, he introduces the idea of the covenant with David. And later on, in verses 28 through 29, we read this, My steadfast love will keep him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. And there you see his steadfast love and faithfulness shining through his covenant. Verses 34 through 37 has similar language. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the sun it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. So we see God's covenant being reliable, being steadfast, being faithful. But if you were to look ahead to verse 39, we read this. You have renounced your covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. And he says that after he says, it will never pass away. Your covenant is forever. And he will not violate his covenant. He will not alter his words. And and the psalmist is saying all this with confidence in the midst of crisis. So verses 1 through 4 is a summary of what he's communicating. This psalm is about the covenant of God. And the covenant is only as good as the person who makes it. He must be both loyal and faithful. But again, we have to remember the end of the story, that the psalmist is in a moment when he's not quite seeing the loyalty and the faithfulness of God. But the psalmist is not quite ready for lament. Instead, he takes the next 14 verses extolling the attributes of God. And this is a great practice, I think, for us in our daily lives. You find yourself in a place where you're not seeing the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. And the promises that God has given to you don't seem to be happening. It seems almost as if God has renounced his promises to you. How do you go to God? Try the psalmist's approach here. And begin with extolling God for his attributes. God, I'm experiencing this, but I am praising you for who you are. I'm praising you for who you are and what you have promised. And this is exactly what the psalmist does, starting in verse 5. In light of his covenant with David, the psalmist praises God for all of his attributes. Can we just pick out his attributes that we see? Maybe verses 5 through 8. We'll just start there. Find an attribute of God. And, uh, and we'll write those down. What do you, what do you see? Verses 5 through 8. Faithfulness. Okay, faithfulness, good. What else? Greatly to be feared. Greatly to be feared. Incomparable. Be feared. Incomparable. Awesome. Awesome. Mighty. Good. Anything else? Most of them. Sorry? He's a ruler. Okay. Good. He's righteous. No? He's strong and powerful. Yes. Strong and powerful. We 
see all those. Here's, here's, here's his faithfulness. He's, he's incomparable, right? Who can be compared to the Lord? He is greatly to be feared. He is awesome. He is mighty. There we see his faithfulness again. If we, if we peek down, we see his mightiness and his strong. Okay? And these are rhetorical questions. Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like our God? Implied answer, nobody. No one is like God. Consider the realm in which he compares God. We see the assembly of the holy ones. Who in the skies? Who among the heavenly beings? He is greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. Awesome above all who are around him. What's being described here? What do you think? The assembly of the holy ones. Angelic hosts. Angelic hosts. This does seem to be a spiritual realm. Um, Without getting too much into the weeds, because it's a very large rabbit trail, but it's a cool rabbit trail. There does seem to be a hierarchy in the spiritual realm. The angels is literally, the angel is just another word for messenger. So when you see angel, it's a spiritual being that is being sent as a messenger. That's what the word means. But there's also allusions throughout scripture to a divine council room with heavenly beings or sons of God is the term that's often used. We read about them in Job 1, verse 6. Now there is a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, is this talking that there's multiple gods? There's multiple deities? No. This is a term, again, gods is Elohim, which which is often described as is a title for God, but also is described uh, to describe this, this heavenly council, these principalities and powers that we see in Scripture. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. This is a really interesting verse. When the Most High, that's God, the Most High, gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of of the sons of God. What does that mean? When he's allotting the different nations, he divvies them up according to the number of the sons of God, this divine assembly. There's some indicators that some of these divine council members actually fell with Satan. We read of the sons of God falling to earth and marrying the daughters of men in the book of Genesis. Daniel 10, verse 13, it says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So again, if the nations are divvied up according to the number of the sons of God, is this saying that Persia, right, was divvied up according to the prince of Persia, and he's one of the ones that fell. I don't know. Kind of cool. Verse, uh, Ephesians 3, verse 10, says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities 
Where? In the heavenly places. So, there's only one God. There's only one Most High. There's only one Lord over all. But God finds himself in this divine council room. We actually see an anecdote in 1 Kings 22 where the prophet Micaiah tells the king, he says, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. We see this divine council in session. And in this passage, in Psalm 89, he seems to be describing this divine council of angelic beings, the assembly of the holy ones, the heavenly beings, the council of the holy ones, all who are around God. And in that context, even in this heavenly realm, this divine council, who is the one who is feared among all of them? It's God. He is incomparable to those around him. He is faithful He is the mighty one. No principality or power can be compared to our God. And so that's what the psalmist is extolling. God, it's one thing to say that you're greater than mankind in this creation, but even among the heavenly realm, you are incomparable. You are greatly to be feared. I told you that's kind of a fun rabbit hole. You're welcome to dive down that rabbit hole even more if you want. This is the God who has made a promise to us. A covenant to us. Continuing on in verses 9 through 10, we read that this God rules the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. We've seen this before, where the sea is often a poetic image of chaos or judgment. And here we see the raging of the sea and the rising of the waves. And this is when the sea crosses those set boundaries that God has made for them. And even in those situations, God rules them. He rules the raging of the sea. And even when its waves rise, you still them. Perhaps even allusion to his faith, his faith in God, while it seems like his life is raging. When the waves are rising, he acknowledges God's in control. God rules the raging of the sea. And when its waves rise, it is God who stills them. Verse 10. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. What in the world? Okay. Poor Rahab. What are we picking on Rahab for? Now, when you hear, when you hear Rahab, who do you think of? Joshua. fit The battle of Jericho, right? And uh, Rahab was the lady in Jericho that was spared. Is that who you thought of when you read that verse? Yeah. Is that who he's talking about? No. <laughs> no. Really changes the story of Rahab if this is indeed the case. What is the psalmist talking about? Well, Rahab could mean one of two things. Number one, we, do, we know that it was not the lady in Jericho because we see references to Rahab far before Rahab was ever born. He's actually, she's, Rahab is mentioned in Job 9, verse 13, which we believe is the earliest book historically, chronologically written. It says, God will not turn his back, will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. So who is this Rahab? Rahab could mean one of two things. It was often the name of a mythical sea creature 
monster symbolizing chaos. We see this allusion in Job 26, verses 12 through 13. It says, By his power he stilled the sea. By his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his wind the heavens were made fair, and his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. All right? So Rahab is this chaotic sea monster. And so it's, we, references of Rahab are, are, are brought up to show God's power over chaos, his control over chaos. But also... Rahab is in reference to one other thing in Scripture. Anyone know? Egypt. Very good. It, in Jewish literature, it often came to symbolize Egypt. Isaiah 30, verse 7, says this, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. So that passage is saying that Israel is trying to rely on Egypt as an ally. And, and you know, Egypt has this opinion of, uh, this reputation of being powerful, chaotic. And he's saying, this Egypt is going to be no help at all. That's why I'm going to call him Rahab, who sits still. This chaotic sea monster who's useless. Another passage, Isaiah 51, 9 through 11. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of God. Of the Lord awake, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? So there we see Rahab in reference to the sea monster, and then directly connected to what story? The crossing of the Red Sea. He crushed Rahab, Egypt. And then dried up the sea so that the people of Israel can walk through it. And so in this context, you crush Rahab like a carcass. I think it's most likely referring to Egypt. How do I, why do I think that? Well, number one, you see connection to the sea, the Red Sea, perhaps. And then you crush him like a carcass. Exodus 14, verse 30, in the story of crossing the Red Sea, we read this, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. You crushed Rahab like a carcass, and there are the bodies of the Egyptian army on the shore. And then you have synonymous parallelism. You crushed Rahab, and then what is that parallel to in the next line? Your enemies, right? So Rahab is your enemies. All that to say, what is he communicating in verse 10? God is powerful, sovereign over the chaos, power over our enemies. He is mighty to save. And this is the God who has made a covenant with you. He is powerful. He is sovereign. He is ruler. Verse 11 through 13 expounds this even more. Read, the heaven is yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. Tabor and Hermon are two mountains. And someone who's living in the region of Galilee, Tabor would have been to the south and Hermon to the north. And so when he says the north and the south, you've created them. He's looking up, he's seeing the mountains in the distance, one to the north, one to the south, and saying they joyfully, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high is your right hand. 
God is the powerful creator over all things. Heavens are yours, earth is yours. You know, you may have heard the idea that God gave the earth over to Satan, and now Satan owns the world. Is that true? It's not true. It's true that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, that while Satan has influence over the people of this world who are following the prince of the power of the air, Satan does not own this world. In fact, Satan, even Satan, is under the sovereignty of God, as we see in the book of Job. God owns everything. God is sovereign over all. He is powerful. He is strong. So any failing in his covenant could not be from his inability or his weakness. This is who God is, and he extols the righteousness of God. Any questions, comments so far before we continue on? Yes, certainly. I was just thinking that in verse 9 where it says, you rule the raging in the sea, it made me think of Jesus when he said, even the wind and the waves. Yeah, that's a neat connection. Um, Jesus stilled the waves when the waves rose. And you wonder, maybe the disciples, when they saw that on the boat, you wonder, maybe, did they have Psalm 89 in their, in their mind, perhaps? Wow, he stilled the raging sea, just like God, Yahweh, did. Who is this? Jesus is God in flesh. Anything else? Questions? Comments? When the waves exceed their boundaries, is that a hurricane? (laughs) (laughs) Technically speaking, yes. I definitely believe we're familiar with this, aren't we? But yet God is sovereign even over that, isn't he? He rules the raging of the sea. In other words, that means the raging of when the sea rages, that does not mean that God has lost his control. He is sovereign over the raging of the sea. So he is mighty. He has a strong hand. High your right hand. But God is not a cruel ruler. He is a good ruler. And how does God rule? Look at verse 14. I want to park you for a little bit. Righteousness and justice are what? The foundation. And then, what do we see? Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. This is a fantastic, beautiful picture. If we were to envision a throne, let me try to draw a throne here. You can draw one better, I'm sure. Alright, here's a throne. Alright, some 3D action there. There we go. Alright. So, here's the throne. What is his throne sitting on? Righteousness and justice. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. If we're going to think of a picture of a king sitting on a throne, what role does steadfast love and faithfulness play? Justice and righteousness are the foundation of his throne. What's steadfast love and faithfulness? Okay. All right, going before you. What was that? How he treats his subjects. How he treats his subjects. So it's almost how we see his rule played out in relation to his people. I love this phrase, go before you. You and I think of, when I think of that, that, that language, I think of emissaries. 
being sent out by the king. So, if righteousness and justice are the foundation of the throne of God, then steadfast love and faithfulness are his servants being sent out, his emissaries being sent out. Everything God decrees, everything he does is right and just. Whatever God ordains is right. Every decision is right and it is just. He cannot do otherwise. And the steadfast love and faithfulness are his emissaries. They go before him. They go before his righteous and just acts and decrees. And aren't we thankful for that? If we met God's righteousness and justice face to face, if those were his emissaries, what would be the result? Condemnation. Death. We're sinners. Yet while God's, the foundation of his rule is righteousness and justice, he sends before him his steadfast love and faithfulness. It's almost like these are the emissaries preparing the way, warning sinful people about their rebellion before the righteous judgment of God arrives. You can see a father mm-hmm. who is going to teach his children the right way, the mm-hmm. godly way. You can see that I told you that I was going to do this and such. If you disagree with me, whatever, mm-hmm. I love you. He still loves the child. Mm-hmm. And he was faithful about what he said. Yes. And uh, now he's carrying the fruit, and you can see that being sweet and kind and say, oh, poor little kid, he wanted to do it. Right. It's not a good father. Right? Yeah. And, and, and so you can see how both of these are so important that you need to be righteous and just. But if there's righteousness and justice apart from that steadfast love and faithfulness, right? Maybe you could say that's a heavy handedness. But if you have the faithfulness and love without the righteousness and justice, then you have a pushover, perhaps, right? God is, God is both. And God sends forth, if we envision him going forth with his justice and his righteousness, as we read that, that it is because of our sins, it is on account of our sins, that the wrath of God is coming. There's his righteousness and justice. But he sends his emissaries of steadfast love and faithfulness before him. In what ultimate way did God send his steadfast love and faithfulness to a sinful people before his coming wrath? Jesus Christ. 1 John 9, 1, 9-14, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is God incarnate. And we can rejoice that we don't meet God's righteousness and justice face to face. We meet his steadfast love and faithfulness first as an offer, as a fig leaf, as a, as a peace treaty. He said, be reunited with me. Join me. Enter a covenant with me. And those who respond 
to that steadfast love and faithfulness? We read in verse 15, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your, by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. His tone will change later, but here it focuses on the joy and exaltation of living in the light of God's presence. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk in the light of your face. Those who have a relationship with God, who have received his steadfast love and faithfulness, seen through the promises, the covenant of God, what describes their life? They exalt in your name all the day. And in your righteousness, they are exalted. We're strengthened, for you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. God, when we receive his faithfulness and steadfast love, it results in joy and exaltation. And then we start to see the segue into the promises of God in connection with the king. See so that God is good. He's steadfast love. He's faithful. And by that, our horn is exalted. This is often a sign of kingship. By your favor, the king is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord. We saw this in another psalm. Is this shield a description of God? Or something else. What is our shield in this verse? Wasn't it David? It's, I think it's talking about the king. Again, how do we know? Our shield belongs to the Lord. What's the next line? Our king. our king to the Holy One of, Holy One of Israel. There's the parallelism. We've seen our shield in reference to the king before. God's steadfast love and faithfulness are shown through his promises. And it is through his promises that our king, the anointed one, is going to be protected. The king belongs to the Lord. He will be exalted by the favor of God. And again, you, all of this, you have those echoes of the end of the psalm. Where he's saying this in a situation in which that covenant seems to be shattered, broken. And if God's goodness and faithfulness is shown through his faithfulness to the covenant, then a breaking of the covenant means an end of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's what the psalmist is wrestling with. And so he's exalted the word of God. He's exalted the attributes of God. And then the next section, verses 19 through 37, is going to be recounting the promises of God. Of old you've spoken in a vision to your godly one, there's David, and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty, I have exalted one chosen from the people, there's David. 20, I have found David, there's David, my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him. And so here, in this next section, he's going to give in detail the content of the covenant that he made with David. And this is going to be the basis for the petition later on in the psalm. And so we're going to pause here in our in-depth analysis of the psalm, and I want to zoom out again, because we're about to enter the section where David, or the psalmist, is recounting to God what he has promised in great detail. He's going to say, God, you promised 
this right before he says, and it seems like the promise isn't there. And it ends with a petition. God, how long? How long? And we see this throughout Scripture, that the petitions of the saints begin with, God, I'm asking this because you promised this. They put before God his promises, and they ask God to stay true to his word. Did you know that's a legitimate thing to pray to the Lord? God, you promised. God, you and your steadfast love and faithfulness, you said this. How long? God, show yourself faithful. Show your promises to be true. And even in that content, in context of crying out to the Lord, saying, how long? What is the psalmist doing? He's saying, God, this is who you are. You are faithful. You are powerful. You are exalted above the heavens, the earth, the heavens. They're all yours. You're sovereign over the raging sea. You are, you are, you are mighty. You are strong. Those are all true. Asking how long does not contradict that faith. But it is a heart of that faith that brings that petition to God. So bring God's promises to him in prayer. God, you promised me this. And Lord, I believe in who you are. I believe in your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And right now, it seems like that steadfast love and that faithfulness has been revoked. But I know who you are, and I know what you've promised. And so on that basis, I'm asking you, show yourself faithful. Show yourself strong. That's a legitimate thing to pray. And, very important caveat. Before you say, God, you promised me this, make sure God promised you this. (laughs) You want to make sure that it is not only a legitimate promise of Scripture... But secondly, it is a legitimate promise to you. Because you know what we do sometimes? We look at promises to Israel and say, God, you promised me health and wealth and success and land, so give it to me. And what would God respond to that? That wasn't you. That was Israel. But are there promises to us as New Testament believers? Countless promises. And God will stay faithful to his promise. And it is impossible for God to lie. Linda. Isn't there a gift you do such and such? For some. Words? For some promises, right? Was there such a thing for the covenant? Well, there was a both and. This, is a, this was a unconditional covenant in relation to there will all, you know, the, the Davidic line will continue, and we see that actually ultimately fulfilled in Christ, who is the son of David. But we do see an element of the covenant that did have a conditional clause. We actually see that in this psalm later on. Let's see if I can find it. Verse 30. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love, or be false to my faithfulness. Right? 
So there's a condition in that, but it does not negate the covenant itself. It simply says, within this promise, if they violate this, I will punish, I will chastise, but I will not revoke the covenant, right? And so again, from his perspective, he, it looks like he's revoked it. Your steadfast love has ceased. But perhaps he's just looking at a time of chastening, right? And from his perspective, it seems like the covenant's over. God's perspective, he says, no, it's not over. There's just some chastening going on here, right? That's the human perspective right. a lot of times when we pray, you promised me, Lord. Yes. Yeah, but wait a minute, you didn't follow through with your portion of the, your portion of what we were talking about. Sure, so, so in other words, we could, see, we could be saying, we could be experiencing the chastening of God, as a loving father chastens his children. Yet, what's our human perspective? God, your faithfulness ceased. Right? You stopped loving me. And he's saying, no, I didn't stop loving you. I'm, I'm chastening you. And that's within the context of my love. Right? And so, it just shows how important it is that we're viewing the promises of God, his faithfulness clearly, according to Scripture. And we're not imposing our own expectations, our own idea of promises onto God and then blaming him for not doing what we want him to do rather than what he promised to do. Any other? Yes, Bob. Uh, verse 18 talks about the shield. Yes. And that reminds me of Ephesians chapter 6 where we have the armor of God. Mm-hmm. We can use for protection. Yes, absolutely. And I'm trying to find. I'm trying to find the. Is it verse 18? I just looked at verse 18 and somehow I missed it. Uh, 18. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought I heard shield. You said shield. Okay, all right. Much different. Two different ideas there for sure. Because I was, I was thinking, okay, how is shield connected to the armor of God? And I was really having a hard time. So I'm glad I figured that out before I called you out. All right. Yes, our shield. Yes, the connection to the arm of God. That makes more sense. All right. Anything else? Other comments? Questions? God is, is a beautiful picture of the two sides to the same situation. Right? This, this psalm is a psalm of crisis. Something horrible has happened. And in the psalm, we see both God's perspective... At the beginning of the psalm, his attributes, his power, his faithfulness, his love. And at the end of the psalm, we see man's perspective. God, it seems like your faithfulness has ceased. (laughs) Never trust your own perspective on your situation. Trust the attributes of God and his word and his promises that he has clearly given to you. And know that if he has truly promised it to you, it is impossible for God to lie. He cannot lie. He cannot go against his covenant. He cannot go against his promises, and we can count on that. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness and for your steadfast love. We thank you. You are a God who is exalted above all, that no one in heaven can be compared to you, that you are over the heavens and the earth. You own everything. You are mighty. You are powerful. You are a God who, whose throne is founded on righteousness and justice, and you send out your steadfast love and faithfulness. We see your faithfulness in your promises and your covenants. We see your goodness in your steadfast love to us.
Yet, Lord, we don't always notice these things. We don't always praise you for these things. Instead, from our limited human perspective, oftentimes we feel like your steadfast love has ceased. That you have revoked your promises to us. And this psalm acknowledges that that feeling is real. That there are times in our life when that feels like reality. We thank you that this psalm points us to who you are even in that reality. Even when the waves are rising, when the sea is raging, you are sovereign over all things. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room tonight that is going through a moment of crisis, that is going through a time when it feels like your faithfulness has come to an end, that they might go to you in prayer, that they would praise you for who you are, that they would recount to you your promises to them, and that they might cry out to you for your faithfulness, for your truth, for your goodness. And we ask that you might show them who you are, even in this time.